electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a record-breaking summer for the markets and two record-breaking investors on where they're looking for opportunities. Wall Street legend Lee Cooperman. The FANG stocks of today are like the Nifty 50 of 1972. And what we have to understand in the Nifty 50 of today, there'll be a certain failure rate. And Carlisle co-founder David Rubenstein. People are looking for things that are post-COVID. You can see the world is changing. There are going to be opportunities because people are going to change their lifestyles, going to change the way they work, the way they live. Those stories, plus Warren Buffett's betting on Japan and TikTok, TikTok, a deal deadline is approaching. The saga has so much going on. It's like you can't keep up with this because every day there's going to be three new pieces that spin it in a different direction. It's Monday, August 31st, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Brian Sullivan and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are out today, but Brian and Mike, it's good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. Too bad. Great to be here. Good to see you guys. Hey, Brian, I don't know if you were up at 530, but Frank Holland referred to you as Big Papa. I thought that was kind of cool, and I thought you'd appreciate I know. it. Well, first, was I up? I'm up at 330. Uh, yeah, I know. Listen, I found the nickname. I found the nickname Juicy, Endearing. and I'm hypnotized by it. So I don't mind it. Yeah, I got yeah. Sully. I got a lot of nicknames going on. Well, all right. TikTok, you don't stop giving us news. TikTok's China-based parent company ByteDance says that a new Chinese law makes a sale of TikTok's American assets more complicated or perhaps even impossible. At issue, a new rule enacted in China only last Friday that bans the export of certain technologies. Some of those are in TikTok, primarily the AI-based recommendation engine. This likely means that ByteDance will need to obtain some kind of a license from the Chinese government if it wants to sell TikTok's U.S. operations. The big question still out there, would China block any sale? We don't know. It's not clear. But the timing of China's move may be telling, guys. It had not updated the tech export ban list since 2008 until, of course, Friday. Well, in other news on TikTok... The company tells CNBC it is not in talks to sell that American asset to rival video sharing app Triller. But Triller's executive chairman says that a bid was submitted and his company has correspondence going with ByteDance. So the TikTok saga, Becky, continues to ramp up with a small or I should say big twist thrown in by the Chinese government only on Friday. Kind of amazing timing. Yeah. And. And obviously, there's no coincidence, the idea that they haven't changed these laws in 12 years. This is their way kind of going back at the U.S. government for its role in saying that it's not going to be allowed to operate here unless it has a U.S. owner. I, I mean, I think the big question is, does this just leave ByteDance in the position where it's not going to be able to operate in the United States because China won't let them sell it and the U.S. won't let them operate without a, an American owner? That is the question. I mean, could theoretically TikTok be going away in the United States? It's not impossible, given what the president has said. You know, but you wonder the reason for this new law. I guess there's two potential reasons is, number one, um, they just kind of want to put a stick in President Trump's eye. That could just be it as well. Or maybe there's mm -hmm. certain technologies, as evidenced by the law, that they don't want us to have. And then one would wonder, 
what might be those laws. I will say Why China not? appears very good at trying to protect its own intellectual property assets, but maybe not quite as good as protecting ours there. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. Um, I, I, honestly, this, this saga has so much going on. It's like you can't keep up with this because every day there's going to be three new pieces that spin it in a different direction. When I heard Walmart was involved, I thought that was a joke or yeah. something at first. The, the, that was the onion or something along those lines. So trying to keep up with this, uh, not easy, but ultimately it is going to be the two governments that really have the most say over it. Yeah, Becky, the fascinating part of it, too, is that every new potential bidder or confirmed bidder for TikTok in the U.S. seems to have its stock price go up. So now you have all these companies yeah. out there that implicitly have some little <laughs> premium in there because, hey, maybe they're going to end up with this thing. Um, you know, it seems a little bit uh, speculative and, uh, and a little frothy shooting from the hip. But uh, it does show you, I think, that this is almost would be considered a windfall of a forced sale of an asset that, you know, four months ago, nobody thought they'd be able to own. Right. Well, and right. I think we've learned who's in um, charge here. I mean, Kevin yeah. Mayer stepping down on, on Friday after three months of the job, I think you quickly realized that. Despite having CEO in his title, he was not the CEO, apparently left out of negotiations. So basically CEO in name only, and perhaps he just said, what am I doing? I don't really actually have a job here. And he left. So you have, you know, we've learned who's in charge of TikTok's American assets, and that is ByteDance, but it's probably also uh, the Chinese government. Warren Buffett actually making some news over the weekend, announcing that Berkshire Hathaway has actually acquired a stake of slightly more than 5% in each of the five leading Japanese trading companies. Those companies are Itochu Corporation, Marubeni Corporation, Mitsubishi, Mitsui, and Sumitomo. Berkshire actually acquired those holdings over a roughly 12-month period through regular purchases on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Berkshire says that it intends to hold those investments for the long term and that it may actually increase the holdings of any of the companies to a maximum of 9.9 percent. However, Buffett said that he would not go above that threshold unless given specific approval by the trading company's boards of directors. This investment is a big one for Berkshire. A 5% stake in each of those companies would be valued at about $6.25 billion. And collectively, if you look at that as one bet, that puts his bet on Japan at about his seventh largest holding, just above Wells Fargo, based on the most recent regulatory filings. Uh, he's been selling Wells Fargo. We know that in the second quarter. He unloaded about 25% of the holdings that he had in that company, which has been a long-term holding for his. And, of course, his largest holding is Apple. That company is now valued his share his take in that company is now valued at about $90 billion. And uh, this all happened on his 90th birthday. So it just goes to show that he is constantly changing the way he thinks and changing the way he invests. He did say that this is uh, a bet. He's delighted to have Berkshire Hathaway participate in the future of Japan and the five companies that they've chosen for this investment. Those five major trading companies, by the way, um, are very crucial in Japan. They import everything from uh, food and textiles and energy into a country that is in, in, in scarce in resources. Uh, so they play a key role in a lot of those imports for this. He says that the five major trading companies have lots of joint ventures throughout the world, and they're likely to have more of those partnerships. And this is a quote from him. He says, I hope that in the future there may be more opportunities of mutual benefit. By the way, another example of Buffett kind of shaking things up and surprising people, he had long said that he wouldn't invest in technology companies because he didn't understand technology companies. He bought his first shares of Apple just about just over four years ago. That was back in May in 2016. So it just goes to show that when you think you know what he's going to do, he will change and dodge. And this is a, a pretty different uh, a take, a different move that a lot of people, I'm sure, would not have expected.
Yeah, Becky, I mean, going, announced, uh, going where the opportunities yeah, are, uh, also implicitly, um, I mean, a bet not just on Japan, but on global trade and on, you know, the, on Asia's imp mm -hmm. continued importance in, in all of that. Uh, it reminds me a little bit in the early yeah. 2000s, he bought a big stake in PetroChina, uh, which at the time was a very big departure. Right. And he had actually a very good trade. He sold it in, I think, 2007 or six. So, uh, you know, not the first time he's, he's in that part of the world, but it's definitely a, a new wrinkle in terms of his thinking, it seems. Uh, <laughs> I used to work for Mitsubishi Trading. And so, yeah. But it's a hard business. The profit margins can be very low. They've had a lot of consolidation. Of course, that was a long time ago, guys. But the profit margins have gotten tough, and I think maybe he's putting this bet on global growth. I think what's more interesting, too, is what he's not doing, which is putting more money back into U.S. companies. He could have bought anything, as you know, Becky. Instead, he's going to Japan yeah. and getting out of Wells Fargo in weakness. I mean, Wells Fargo maybe has supplanted Apple or Boeing as the most important stock in America, down 54%, I think it is, over the last year, biggest mortgage holder, and yet getting out of it into some weakness, that to me is also speaks volumes of what he's not doing. Yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing. Just the idea, the trading companies aren't the same as the banks in Japan, but they are the intermediaries between the banks and their clients, so they do play a big role in the financial side of things. So to be selling something like a Wells Fargo um, at the same time that you're loading up on this stick, I, I thought was pretty noticeable too. Wells Fargo, in their most recent filings, I think came in at number seven. It was around $6 billion in that holding, um, but that was as of June 30th. And again, this, this bet is a combined six and a quarter billion, or at least that's the value right now if you were to take 5% stake in each of those companies. Guys, we also mentioned that this Berkshire News was announced on Buffett's 90th birthday. We weren't the only ones who noticed that. Bill Gates actually wrote a blog post about his friendship with Warren, noting that the two share a lot in common, including their love of math. In honor of that, he threw out a few numbers, like 10,649. That's the number of days since the two first met back on July 5th of 1991. And two, that is the number of people that Bill Gates has on his speed dial in his office. The first is his wife, Melinda, and then there's Warren Buffett. Gates also posted uh, this birthday message showing Gates baking an Oreo cake with Buffett's face on it and a message that said, happy 90th birthday, Warren. Coming up on Squawk Pod, legendary Wall Street investor Lee Cooperman on where he's finding market and political opportunity. We have a man with limited character who has good economic ideas, but he's very divisive in his dialogue. We have a man of decent character who I'm not sure what he stands for. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Brian Sullivan and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are both off today. It is the last trading day of the month. So far, for the month of August, the Dow is up by about 8%. That puts it on track for its best performance in 36 years. S&P 500 also up sharply this month. It's up by better than 7%. Mike? Yeah, Becky, by the way, for July and August, S&P up 13%. So a uh, very strong summer so far. Wow. It is a trading day. <laughs> Uh, to remember right now, Apple and Tesla both carrying out a stock split. Apple's a four for one and Tesla five for one. 
Apple split changes its weight in the Dow. And that is uh, the reason for the other big change today. Amgen, Salesforce and Honeywell become new members of the Dow 30, replacing ExxonMobil. Uh, Pfizer and Raytheon. So uh, Apple's uh, waiting in the Dow uh, with this split and the rejiggering and it's actually radically lower. It's about 3%, I guess, of, uh, of the overall Dow at this point. Joining us right now is Wall Street legend Lee Cooperman. He is the chairman and CEO of Omega Family Office. And Lee, it's great to see you. It's been a little while since we've spoken. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Lee, let's talk about what this summer has been. Uh, Mike just pointed out that for the months of July and August, you were looking at the S&P up by 13 percent. So this was not a sell in May and go away summer. Um, there have been a lot of people who have been awfully concerned about what we see in the economy, what is likely to come down the road. I know you've been concerned, too. And in fact, most of the long term investors and people who have been doing this for a very long time have been concerned. But you look at the last couple of months. What, what do you think after watching well, the, what's happening in the, the markets right now? How do you reassess? I think it's very obvious what's going on. It's the miracle of free money. Uh, zero commissions, and a lot of people at home getting checks that exceed what they would get if they went to work. And with uh, sporting events closed down, uh, they're sporting around in the stock market. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, basically that the president, I might add, wanted to fire on more than one occasion, has given investors a long-term put by promising to keep rates near zero for an extended period of time. This has led to a dramatic expansion of market valuations. And frankly, the president uh, should kiss the chairman on all four cheeks, in my opinion. Uh, and we also have a president. <laughs> running for four cheeks. Yeah. Well, four cheeks. Yeah, I won't go any beyond that. We also have a president that will, that will say and do anything to get reelected. And he's watching the stock market. Um, and so all that is positive. Uh, uh, but I, I, I understand what's going on, but frankly, I'm uncomfortable at the present time. It's not because of the virus, and it's not because of the economy. I've been on the show repeatedly, uh, and I've said I'm optimistic they'll find a cure for the virus. It's taking longer than I would have thought, but I think they'll find the cure. I'm optimistic the economy will recover, uh, but I'm focused on who pays for the party when the party is over. You know, this nation has just celebrated its 244th birthday. Okay. It took us 244 years to go from zero national debt to 21 trillion. This year, we'll probably end the year with national debt of, I don't know, 25, 26 trillion thereabouts. There's a growth rate in debt far in excess of the growth rate of the economy. Uh, um, and that means to me that more of our nation's income will have to be devoted to debt service, which will retard economic growth. You know, and I think both fiscal and monetary policies are pulling demand forward which should work against future returns. Uh, you know, what I've observed over many years of doing this is price earnings ratios are a function of confidence, of growth rates, and of interest rates. It's hard for me to argue uh, or imagine that confidence is uh, higher today than on average, given what's going on in the world between the virus, the economy, the election uncertainty, and the tremendous amount of violence, regrettably, going around in the country, uh, social unrest. So I think confidence has got to be lower. Growth rates, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think is going to be lower because of the need to service the debt that we're creating. So what's driving the whole thing are interest rates. And you know what people have to understand is the Fed is pursuing a zero interest rate policy, not because things are good in the economy. They're pursuing a zero interest rate policy because things are bad in the economy. So um, you know, I, I, I would say I have a conservative view. The Fed is forcing everybody out on the risk curve. Bonds offer return-free risk 
You know, the idea of buying a bond where you get 70 basis points for 10 years, when you can buy plenty of, find plenty of good companies yielding 2 and 3% or more, it makes no sense to me. So when it all comes down to I'm a numbers person, the S&P is roughly 3,500. It's selling at 23 times normalized earnings. Okay, uh, that multiple is high versus history. Not particularly high relative to interest rates. Okay, but um, I would argue that the stock market and the economy, to some degree, has been on some form of life support since 2008. You said that, you know, it's a very, a very fair question to ask who's going to pay for the party when the party's over. But isn't it true that the party could last a lot longer than anybody thinks? It could, but you have to do what you're comfortable doing. In other words, uh, I retired from active money management at the end of 2018. And I tell people with a smile on my face, I always try to smile, that, you know, I feel like I'm Hyman Roth uh, at a scene in Godfather 2, which I'm sh- I've seen a hundred times, a great movie where right before they shot him, he said, I'm a retired executive living on a pension. And I tell people I'm a retired money manager living on an investment income. The bad news is I have no active income. The good news is I have no pressure. The overall market, I think we've been pulling a lot of demand forward. And I'd expect that future returns will be relatively unimpressive for a long time. I remember, you know, I graduated Columbia Business School on January 31st of 1967. I had a six-month-old son, had no money in the bank. I was basically broke. And I couldn't afford to take a vacation. And the very next day, I went to work for Goldman Sachs, February 1st of 67. I spent close to 25 years, very enjoyable years there. Okay. Uh, when I joined Goldman, the Dow was 1,000. 14 years later, in 1982, the Dow was 1,000. Now, I'm not making 14-year forecasts, but uh, um, I just observed that I think we're, we're pulling demand forward. You know, we came into 2020 with a fully employed economy, yet we were running a trillion dollar deficit. And now we're piling a lot of debt on, to- uh, piling a lot of debt on top of that. In fact, it's just interesting, you know, the Oracle, who I have enormous respect for, uh, just showed up buying a bunch of stocks in Japan. You know, I think what he's basically saying is, well, he, since he's doing very little in the United States, that he finds valuations in the United States relatively unattractive, and he's looking outside the United States for opportunities. If you're concerned about stock prices, where, where do you put your money? Well, I've been putting some money in credit, uh, uh, where I, I'm getting high returns, you know, very idiosyncratic, uh, things like uh, Aquin bonds, trading at 88 with an 8 and 3 eighths coupon, change of control put a 101. The relevance of that is in their recent press release, they basically, you know, put a for sale sign on the company. So if something happens, I could get a pick pickup. Title Max. There, you know, there are things to do with credit. My biggest credit position, which is the biggest position in my family office, is something called Legato, which has a, a ton of 5G spectrum, which uh, has been approved for use by the uh, FCC by vote of five to zero. The spectrum is worth substantially more than the debt. But that's a very idiosyncratic special situation. Um, you know, I would say that, look, if, if the Fed can keep interest rates depressed, we could continue to pull this caper off uh, financial suppression. What I'm watching closely for change is the pace of economic growth, the dollar exchange rate, inflation, and Fed speak. Uh, and you know what I would just say? I think the market has no margin of safety in it. Uh, and for years, I've quoted the, the great Sir John Templeton, uh, where he said, bull markets are born of pessimism, they grow in skepticism, they mature in optimism, they die in euphoria. And I see signs of euphoria creeping into the market. You know, uh, um, the IPO and SPAC market uh, is one. 
the craziness in many of the stocks that the Robinhood crowd has uh, latched on to. You know, you see a, a Kodak going from a buck and a half to 60, from 60 to 6 in a very short periods of time. You know, the great Carl Icahn, who was no dummy, made a mistake, as we all make mistakes, and it hurts. He sells at his position at 72 cents a share, and three weeks later, he's trading at $5. And when you look into it, it's the Robinhood crowd taking it up. You know, look at Tesla and Apple. Everybody, everybody understands that splits don't create value. My dad once told me if he gave me five singles for a $5 bill, I'm no better off. Okay? Uh, um, and so we see Tesla up 54% since the day they announced the split. The S&P is up less than 4%. Apple's up 30% with the S&P up 6%. And everybody's talking about the split. Now, the splits don't create any uh, value. Also, I'd go on investment advisors are more than 60% bullish, which is normally a level associated with a correction. Uh, uh, you know, uh, six months ago, every day, the market fluctuated vi- wildly on news out of uh, China and the United States. My view is the market doesn't go up much further from current levels the rest of the year. And I frankly wouldn't be surprised if the market dropped next year. But I don't have to make that bet now. Let me ask you, if you're, not, if you're not putting a lot of money into stocks, I, I know you sold Centene. Can you, can you say why you sold Centene and, and have you sold other stocks as well? No, I'm I, I'm fine. I'm I'm reasonably fully invested, um, mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of money and credit, um, and uh, you know I find things to do. Like I'll give you a perfect example. Like the, I said, there are three markets out there. Market number one is the Fang market, okay. And I own I own Google, I own uh, Amazon, I own Microsoft, I own Facebook. Uh, they're better than gold. Uh, they're not cheap. Uh, they're pricey, but they're not pricey relative to interest rates. Okay, I'm not adding to them, but I'm sitting with them because these are great companies. But I would only point out that the FANG stocks of today are like the Nifty 50 of 1972. And I went back uh, uh, and I, I looked. These, you know, in, in 1972, the dominant investing institutions were J.P. Morgan and U.S. Trust. Their philosophy was, we don't care what multiple we pay for what we buy, as long as we're buying a world-class dominant company, okay? Uh, back then, Avon was a nifty 50, 65 times earnings. Eastman Kodak, 48 times earnings. GE, 26 times earnings. IBM, 37 times earnings. Polaroid, 90 times earnings. Revlon, 30 times. Sears Roebuck, 31. Amar, 34. Xerox, 41, okay? Uh, um, we, we don't have, and back then, by the way, in 1972, the 10-year government was 6.5%. Today, the 10-year government is 70 mm-hmm. basis points. So while expensive, they're not outlandishly expensive, and you got to ch- p- pick your poison. So I have a few there, and what we have to understand in the nifty 50 of today, there'll be a certain failure rate, as there was. You know, Polaroid is no longer with us. Avon didn't turn out to be what people thought it was. IBM didn't turn out to be what we thought it was. Sears is gone. Kmart is gone. Xerox was overtaken by the Japanese. So the same thing will happen now. You'll you'll identify your nifty 50 of today, and a certain percentage will uh, not perform. Lee, I want to thank you for your time today and some valuable market advice. I think what I'm taking away from this is that you see signs of euphoria creeping into the market. We will definitely come back to you soon and get more, but we want to thank you for your time today. And I say, uh, you know, uh, David Rubenstein is the son of a postal worker. Okay, he made a shitload of money and is giving it all back in very creative ways. In my own little way, I have less zeros than him, okay, but I have a similar thing. I'm the son of a plumber. 
I went to public school in the South Bronx. I went to high school in the South Bronx. I went to public university in the West Bronx. Uh, I did very well because of hard work, luck, and intuition at Goldman. I've made a lot of money, and uh, I have the pleasure of giving it all the way. And that's the American dream. And we have to make sure that we stay as capitalist nation. Now, everybody thinks that uh, Biden is a socialist. I don't think so. Uh, but he's got to speak out. He's got to speak out loudly and clearly what he stands for. When Nancy Pelosi says, you know, he shouldn't debate, that's the craziest thing I heard. If he can't debate President Trump, who the hell is going to vote for him? He's got to show what he's made of. He's got to declare his views of things. I'm a capitalist with a heart. What made America great is that commitment to capitalism. And that should not change. Pivotal election, but you say you still haven't decided who you're voting for. You're waiting to see oh, what happens over the next uh, you know, 65 I, days. I, I, I have not decided. Look, I, I don't want to get everybody aggravated. But the bottom line is we have a man with limited character who has good economic ideas, but he's very divisive in his dialogue. We have a man of decent character who I'm not sure what he stands for. Okay, And it's up for him to address the issue of law and order. And it's up to him to address the issue of uh, capitalism versus socialism. He's surrounded by socialists. You know, I had a tangle with... Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who I felt uh, handled herself like a politician in the worst sense of the word. I totally dissent from the views of AOC. And that's from somebody who's prepared to give away all his money and somebody who's prepared to pay his fair share of taxes. I, I, I just get driven up a pole when these politicians talk about paying your fair share. What do they have in mind? I'm willing to work six months a year for the government and six months to myself. I think that's fair. When you look around... California, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, you're already well past 50 percent. This is destructive. It's not mm -hmm. constructive. The government's got to get its spending under control. Lee, thank you for your time. And we will talk to you again before Election Day. It's good to see you. Okay. Next on Squawk Pod, David Rubenstein, co-founder of one of the largest and most successful private equity firms in the world, on what he's learned from others. When I interviewed Jeff Bezos, I learned that he doesn't make any decisions before 10 a.m. He doesn't like to make any decisions after 3 p.m. And he gets eight hours of sleep every night. I, I should try that. I, I would be more successful. Maybe I'd be worth $200 billion if I could try that. That interview right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back, or welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I am not Joe Kernan. I am Brian Sullivan. That is, of course, Becky Quick. 
and Mike Santoli, Joe and Andrew, as you may have guessed, are off today. This market rally, this juggernaut market that we have seen just may continue on. We are possibly on pace for one of our, if not the best August ever, right now, our best August since 1984. Not only a great album, but a pretty good and scary book as well, from what I understand, Mike. So it's been a strong market. We'll see if that rallies today with a new look down. The best August for the U.S. stock markets since the 1980s. 36 years since that last best August performance is a long time. Late summer, 1984. The first woman was on a major presidential party ticket. Democrat Walter Mondale and running mate Geraldine Ferraro were campaigning against incumbent President Ronald Reagan. Reagan won. Ghostbusters was in theaters. Stevie Wonder just called to say I love you. Mary Lou Retton's Perfect 10 on the vault led to an all-around Olympic gold in gymnastics. And the Dow Jones of 1984 was at a seven-month high, hitting a highest close of about 1,239. For perspective on how far we have and haven't come since the 1980s, we turn to Wall Street legend and private equity pioneer David Rubenstein. Rubenstein co-founded the Carlyle Group in 1987. Today, the firm manages more than $200 billion around the globe. But Rubenstein's enthusiasm for U.S. history is almost as impressive as his investing prowess. He owns an original copy of the Declaration of Independence, and his philanthropy transformed restoration projects of the Washington Monument and the Dome of the U.S. Capitol. Now, Rubenstein is sharing leadership lessons he's learned from others in a new book. Here's Becky Quick. David Rubenstein. He is the Carlyle Group co-founder and co-executive chairman. His new book is called How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers. It comes out tomorrow, and uh, of course, he's the perfect person to have written that book because he has spoken with all of these uh, many leaders and is a leader himself in, in private equity and has been following the markets for decades. And David, it's great to see you here today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. We're looking forward to the book, and I want to talk with you more about that. But before we do, I'm hoping we can get your thoughts on the markets and maybe a few other things um, as we're watching. Okay. You just heard Brian talk about how this has been the strongest August we've seen uh, in more than 30 years, 36 years so far. I just wonder how you feel about things, because I know uh, that in July you were a little nervous about how high the markets had been, especially given what's been happening in the economy. What do you think now, because we've only kind of gone up since then? I'm still a little nervous. Uh, obviously, the Fed's uh, action or the statement recently last week made it clear that the Fed is going to be very accommodative for a while, and that might be fueling the markets for a while. And right now, I think the neither party is saying things that's scaring the market. Neither the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is saying things that is going to scare the market. So I think the market has somewhere more to go. But on the other hand, I don't think it can keep going up forever at this pace. I think there will be a pause at some point. You think the, the neither party is saying anything that would scare the markets? You, you think if uh, there are things that they should be saying that uh, would, would maybe be a reflection that would cause concern in the markets? Well, at some point after the election, whoever wins, I think reality will set in and we'll have to deal with the deficit and the debt and probably the need for some taxes somewhere to pay for some of the debt and deficit that we have. Uh, nobody wants to focus on that now, and if I were a candidate, I wouldn't focus on it either. But at some point, we, we can't keep having half of our budget come from borrowing money. I think at some point we'll have to pay some of this down, and at some point we'll probably have to pay for it 
with greater taxes. You know, the, the thing the Fed said last week that, that caught me the most is just this idea that they're going to be looking for inflation that's greater than they've been looking for in the past. And, and when that happens, your, your money is worth less unless you do something like an invested in the market. It seems like a difficult time to not be putting money to work in stocks if you realize if, it, if it's sitting in the bank, it's going to be worth less every day. Well, I worked in the Carter White House, and I know a lot about inflation. We had very high double-digit inflation then, and we're not likely to have that again because the world economy has changed dramatically. The Fed would love to have 3 and 4% inflation. That's very difficult to do. I think right now the markets are convinced that the Fed is doing everything it can to accommodate the markets. And remember, the, the central bank's purpose in life generally is to make uh, currencies work and to avoid inflation. In the last 30 or 40 years or so, banks, central banks around the world have taken on the additional uh, job of worrying about unemployment. And that's in our law as well. Under the uh, laws passed in the late 1970s, the Fed is supposed to worry about unemployment as well. So that's an, another factor. And inflation isn't the only factor they worry about. But it's clear they would like more inflation. They just don't know how to really get it right now. David, um, in, in terms of private equity, when, when you see the markets at these incredibly high levels, my guess is it makes it much more complicated for anybody in private equity to get out there and say, OK, we're going to buy this company, turn it around, fix it up, and then be able to sell it back for more down the road. What, what does this do to private equity overall? Is it a good time to be bringing some of the businesses you already have in your portfolio back to market? Um, is it difficult to try and find new companies that you want to jump into? Well, it's obviously a good time to sell, and a lot of things are being sold at reasonably good prices. Uh, in the old days, we would buy things at seven, eight, nine times cash flow. Now, if you're going to buy things, you have to pay 10, 11, 12, 13 times cash flow or more. And you can do so in part because interest rates are so low and you can borrow very cheaply. But there's no doubt that the markets are bullion. And right now, people aren't afraid of paying higher prices. At some point when the markets go down, I think people will be a little bit more afraid. But right now, it's been pretty good for private equity because we have a fair amount of capital to deploy. And investors are looking for good returns. And private equity over the last 5, 10, 15, and 20 years has probably produced greater rates of return than any other asset class. And it appears that it will continue to do so. So that's why private equity is still a pretty good bet, even though returns may come down slightly from where they were a few years ago. Are there certain sectors or certain geographies where there are better opportunities than, than, than you might see in some of the main things that we continue to look at? Well, of course, technology is everybody's favorite thing today, and everybody wants to make every deal a technology deal, and maybe every deal is a technology deal in some respects. Healthcare is another very important area that you're seeing a lot of money go into, uh, biotech uh, related to biotech and healthcare and healthcare services. But generally, I think people are, are, are looking for things that are post-COVID you can you can see the world is changing. In other words, post-COVID, there are going to be opportunities because people are going to change their lifestyles, going to change the way they work, the way they live. And people are trying to make guesses now about what is going to happen after we kind of get a vaccine and we go back to work. We are going to change our life. Remember, just in one year, we've changed our life dramatically, probably more so than we did in any 10 or 20 or 30 year period before because of what COVID has done to make people work at home and work remotely. And so people are going to take advantage of this and private equity will look for good ways to invest in that area, in those areas. Let's talk about your book. It's called How to Lead Again, and it's out tomorrow. Um, you've spoken on your program, on, on your interview show with so many of these leaders, uh, everyone from Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey to Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Richard Branson. There are so many different leaders who you've had the opportunity to speak with. And I, I just wonder what you find in common with, with, with all of these leaders, if anything. Well, all leaders have a number of things in common. One, they had some luck. They all recognize that. 
Two, they, uh, they failed at something because you have to fail before you succeed. So everybody's failed at something. Three, they learned how to focus because they didn't try to do a thousand things at once. They try to do one thing very well. They also learned how to share the credit. They also learned how to persuade other people to follow them. You persuade people by orally speaking well, writing well, or by leading by example. They also learn how to, I think, be ethical. I think the best leaders are ethical, and I think the best leaders have a great deal of humility to them because they recognize there's a lot of luck involved. And then, of course, the best leaders rise to the occasion. When a crisis occurs, that's when something really happens that's important, and that's when a lot of the people I've written about in the book have uh, really made their mark. And so some of the people that you know quite well, you've interviewed many of them as well, they've all had a, an opportunity to rise to an occasion when there was a real crisis, and that's what really distinguishes the great leaders from, let's say, the average leaders. What's important about leaders? Why do we care about leaders? We should care because these are the people that actually are guiding us, other people, uh, in how to do certain things in certain areas. So political leaders, business leaders, cultural leaders, we want to follow them because we think they know something about where we should go, and we should follow their lead, and that's generally what, ha what leaders are about. But everybody, I hope, will be inspired to read the book and learn about how they could be a leader. My real goal is to inspire younger people to read about people who are older, a little more experienced, what these people did and how they, they, the younger people, could say, I could do this as well. And the world is better off if we have good leaders. The world is not good, or good when we don't have good leaders. You were hugely successful yourself before you spoke with any of these leaders and sat down with this. And I just wonder if there was a story or an example, something that, that really caught you by surprise, maybe something you learned and, and, and maybe even incorporated yourself. Well, when I interviewed Jeff Bezos, I learned that he doesn't make any decisions before 10 a.m. He doesn't like to make any decisions after 3 p.m. and he gets eight hours of sleep every night. I, I should try that. I, I would be more successful. Maybe I'd be worth $200 billion if I could try that. I just didn't know that was the secret to life. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of secrets that a lot of people have. And, and of course, a lot of the people... Uh, when you get down to it, they really think that they're not great leaders. They think they got lucky, and they may have had a lucky break here or there. But the truth is, all of them had some distinctive characteristics. And the point about leaders is that that's what makes the world go around and what makes the world really successful is having very good leaders. So at times of war, we've had some great leaders in our country, political leaders. At times of health care crises, we've had some very good leaders. We need good leaders, and we really want to make sure we continue to foster good leaders. And that's what I'm really trying to do is to foster other people to read about leaders, hopefully be inspired, and maybe we'll get even greater leaders down the road in all, these, all the areas that I've written about. Let me turn the tables on you just a little bit. You mentioned that when it comes to leadership, it's being tested and having difficult times and coming through it. That's what makes leaders better leaders. What's a difficult time that you've been through, something you've had to struggle with and, and that you came out the other side on? Well, I worked in the Carter White House. I thought I was uh, going to be a superstar in the second Carter administration, and I would you know, be a more, more powerful person than I was. And then we lost the election to Ronald Reagan and had to start my life all over again. And I realized I wasn't a very good lawyer, practiced law, and didn't, the clients didn't think I was so great, and I didn't think I was so great either. So I had to do something else. I started a private equity firm. And, you know, starting any private equity firm in Washington, D.C. in the 19, in, in, when I did it in 1987 wasn't easy. And so we struggled for, for a while, and we've had our ups and downs, but it's now a very, very successful firm. But I, you know, I've learned, uh, you know, through the difficult uh, election uh, of 1980 uh, that, you know, you can pick yourself off, off, off the ground, but it's not easy to do. And, uh, you know, and anybody that has been through any kind of experience in life probably has failed at something, and I've failed at many things. And uh, I got lucky in life. And so now what I'm trying to do is to essentially give away my money and thank the country for my good fortune. And uh, to some of the one of the ways I want to give back is let people know about 
other people who've been successful in life and more successful than me by far, by far, but let people know about these people and then ultimately maybe people can see them as role models and maybe they will follow the lead of some of these people. Let's use the election as a jumping off point because we are coming up against another election. And to this point, the market doesn't seem to think that there's going to be anything wrong, no matter which party wins. And as you mentioned, there's some, some tough truths that either party would have to deal with uh, come November. What are you doing just as, as a businessman, as a private equity uh, leader, in terms of trying to position yourself depending on which party wins? Is there a big upside or downside? Well, you really can't predict who's going to win and, 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 and plan for that. You just have to make certain that you make reasonably good investments. You're not over levered. You know what you're doing. You are focused on getting good rates of return for your investors. In the end, whoever wins will probably be okay for the investment world. I do think that whoever becomes next president of the United States will have to deal with some economic and financial realities, which probably people don't want to talk about in campaigns. I've been in campaigns, and in campaigns, you generally don't want to say, let me tell you how bad things are going to be in the future. You don't like, like to say that. Uh, uh, Walter Mondale uh, said in 1984, I'm going to give you a big tax increase when I'm elected president. I've already told you that. And he didn't uh, win, win too many states. So people don't tend to say a lot of negative things about how things are going to be once uh, when they're campaigning. They tend to have to deal with some of these realities once they're elected. But that's what the market recognizes. And I think in all private equity firms, we're positioned, whoever gets elected, we'll probably do reasonably well because we have a fair amount of capital, a fair amount of uh, technical expertise. But it's not easy to get the rates of return we're trying to get. And therefore, we, uh, you know, we have to work hard to do it. So there's nothing you're doing one way or the other? That you figured that things will be relatively the same? Or, well, I, I mean, the two I, administrations I do, think, do have pretty different ideas. Yes, and I think you have to assume that it, whoever is elected will probably have to do some similar things. I suspect there will be some tax increases, whoever is elected, just to pay for some of the, the, the deficits we now have. And I suspect at some point, at some point down the road, interest rates will go up, but probably not for a while. And I do think at some point we'll have to recognize the dollar may not be as strong always as it has been. The dollar is under some pressure now. And I do think that people should recognize that there, there are going to be trade deficits going on for quite some time. You don't worry about high inflation again, though. That, that, that's interesting. You, you live through it in the Carter I, administration, and you don't think anything near that is on the horizon? Well, if the Fed wants uh, to know about inflation, they should give me a call. I, I know a lot about it, and I know how to create a lot of inflation, <laughs> but so far they haven't called me. So uh, I, I wish we could get higher inflation because that would help us pay down some of the debt. But to be very serious, I think inflation of about 3 or 4% would not be bad for the economy, probably be good for the economy. Uh, right now, we haven't had inflation of over 2% for quite some time. And I think while that's the Fed's target, a little bit more than 2%, very hard to achieve. The Japanese have been trying to get 2% or more inflation for, for decades. They haven't been able to do so. Inflation is a much more complicated thing to, to get when you really want it than you might think it is. Uh, we used to think deflation was a big problem. Now I think inflation is a bigger problem in terms of getting it. We just can't seem to get enough inflation to really make the economy go and grow as much as I think it should. Hey, David, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And again, thank you, thank you. the new book is called, it's called How to Lead. It hits bookshelves tomorrow, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Thanks for your time, David. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Tomorrow is September 1st, a time when most families would be thinking about back to school. We'll hear from Khan Academy founder Sal Khan, an innovator in digital learning on the new normal for students in 2020.
Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.